Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Paul is teaching us that every human being is accountable before God for their actions. Every single one. Therefore, every single person is under wrath because we cannot perfectly obey and we cannot help but sin. At its essence, all sin is giving glory and honor and praise and value to things that aren't God as though they were God's. We are willful idolaters, is what the Bible teaches every single one of us this morning, all of us. And we are all without excuse. We know when we are doing what is wrong. There may be certain situations where we're not sure what the right decision is, but we all know when we're doing something that isn't right. But we do it anyway. All of humanity has been rebellious in relation to our Creator. And now that Jesus Christ has brought the new world, the new age, the new creation into the old, the wrath of God is currently being poured out on all the wickedness of people He has given over to pursue their own desires. And Scripture teaches that God's ultimate judgment is based on our deeds. And He will most certainly judge impartially the Jewish person first and also equally the Greek, as Paul calls them, or that culture at that time, non-Jewish persons. How can we escape this judgment? As we move on this morning in chapter 2, Paul not only brings the reality of impartial judgment with him from chapter 2 verse 11, but expands on it in terms of what it would mean then if God judges impartially, what would it mean to perish as a sinner in verse 12? or as a righteous doer of the law in verse 13, regardless of whether or not one had the revealed instruction in the Old Testament, what is called the Torah in total. Paul's main point in this section is his indictment of the Jewish people and even the Jewish Christians in Rome for having failed to keep the law, even though they, as Jewish people, had the distinct advantage of calling themselves Jews, God's people, and had possessed and heard the instruction of the Old Testament. By doing this, Paul demonstrates the equality of the Jew with the Gentile under judgment and wrath, which means the belief among the Jews that they had, that the things that set them apart as Jews gave them an advantage in judgment, was horribly mistaken and horribly incorrect. The undeniable depth of human guilt before God means that any advantage one may try to claim before God is absolutely worthless since God saves only, only by the inward work of the Holy Spirit on us and in us. And so let me pray and we'll head into this passage. Father, I ask this morning that you would give me grace to speak the words of life and truth by the power and influence and overshadowing of your spirit. God, I pray that we would all be able to hear the word, that we would take you seriously and your word seriously. Open every ear from the youngest to the oldest here for the sake of Christ. And I ask it in his name. Amen. Verse 12 of chapter 2. For all who have sinned without the law 
will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. These first two verses simply elaborate on verse 11. In verse 12, what becomes clear is that whether or not a person can be considered a sinner does not depend on whether or not one had the written code from God like the Israelites did. It's not like you're free and off the hook and not a sinner if you didn't have the Mosaic law in front of you. Hearing the law, that is, being in the position as Israel was to literally hear and have it read to them and read it themselves and have it taught to them, is not what justified a person before God. That's the same thing as saying being uniquely Jewish does not justify a person before God. It's not the hearing of the law, but the doing, that is, the obeying of the law that justifies a person before God. And you have to listen to Paul because you think, well, again, is he contradicting himself? No. If you were to do the whole law, you would be justified by it. But nobody has ever done that and ever will. The book of Leviticus explains very clearly that that's how the law worked and the covenant to which it was attached. You do this, you live, you don't, you die in judgment. Whoever does the law will be justified before God. Doing the law meant perfectly obeying it. Having no sin, which would require all of us or any of us that dared do such a thing, to have a different nature than any other human being in history. God judges for justification without any partiality whatsoever. Have you been completely obedient? Are you without any sin? Then you're justified. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, or how much money you have, or what class you belong to. Jew or Gentile, if you did the law... You were going to be justified. Now that begs the question, right? How can Gentiles do this law when they hadn't even heard it, many of them not even knowing it exists, because it hadn't been revealed to them as it had been revealed to the Jews? That's verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves, right? So if a a Gentile man that doesn't know there's a commandment not to commit adultery doesn't commit adultery, in a sense, he's obeying that law, even though he doesn't have it. By nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So, the fact that the Gentiles didn't possess the written code as Israel had it, doesn't mean they're at a disadvantage for that reason when it comes to whether or not they can be justified. Because they are law to themselves Paul says, and they have the effect or the work of the law that's in the world written on their hearts, meaning there were things for Gentiles that had never heard the law, didn't even know it exists, that for them performed the same function the written code of the law did for the Israelites. In other words, no one lives without a law of some kind that they should be keeping, a code they should be living by, even if they make it up based on what they feel and know to be right and wrong, because there is a sense of right and wrong in them given to all by their creator. So Martin Luther says then that in reality, no one is really without the law, technically speaking, because God considers all guilty as sinners 
because they've broken the law or a law. We as human beings break any law we know we should live under even when it isn't the Old Testament written code of Moses. And to break the law in one area makes you a lawbreaker. You don't have to break a certain amount. That's all it takes. Those without the written law code of Moses, the Gentiles, in this text have at least three things testifying to them and about them in the same way the written code testifies to the works or those lacking of the Jews. Number one, the fact that sometimes they do the partial work of the law without even knowing it. Secondly, they all have an internal evaluator, if you will, of the rightness and wrongness of the things they do, a conscience. All human beings have this. I just watched the new Pinocchio Friday night. We all have a conscience. You don't need a little tiny cricket to come and tell you that, right? It's in the movie. <laughs> so they all, all human beings have a conscience. Thirdly, they argue and deliberate with others about what is moral or good or right. And this, this even non-Jewish people do all of these things. Right? There, there's always discussion and argument over what is moral and good and right. And it changes throughout history, doesn't it? It changes over time. Things that were considered moral, you know, a hundred years ago are considered horrible today and vice versa and on and on it goes. Even cultures that say they want to be lawless. And just let everyone do whatever they feel or believe is right, right? Live your truth, right? Even they have rules. They still have morality. Or they wouldn't say that anything is wrong if they were consistent. Again, live your truth is a very dangerous thing to say to a person whose truth might be that they're a Nazi or a skinhead or a serial killer or a pedophile or something like this because, hey, that's my truth. Who are you to tell me that this is right or wrong, right? So it's very dangerous. So... Everyone has morality. Everyone has a sense of right and wrong. It's the fact that, and for these reasons, right, even Gentiles are creatures of God who know that they're accountable to something. It's the fact that they are created beings that causes them to know what they ought to do and also to know that they often don't do that. They are also under law then. And therefore, because they are, stand accused along with Israel, who ignored the law they were given also. Because we're all under the law then, we all stand accused. That's the first thing the law does to us. Accuse us. Indict us. If you put a created being under law, he or she is going to break it. This is who we are. No one has lived up to the standard they know or the revelation they were given. No one. No one. These things about us reveal, just like the written code of the Old Testament does to Jewish people, that we are sinners and therefore subject to the current and the end time final day of wrath of Almighty God in verse 16. So not having the Old Testament written code that Israel did have means that we as Gentiles are not at a disadvantage in relation to the Jews because they did have it. We are all equally answerable to our Creator. So none of us non-Jewish peoples could call God unfair or unjust when He brings us under final judgment and wrath. The fact that we didn't have this instruction that's in the Bible doesn't mean we're hopelessly doomed then. It doesn't mean we play second fiddle to Israel and God doesn't really care for us like He does 
for the Jewish people. God cares for Gentiles as much as he cares for Jews, so much so that he brings them all equally under the same standard and his judgment and wrath so that all may see that we are a law unto ourselves and therefore may also come to a recognition of our sin and our need for a Savior. So Paul makes his point that the Jews have no advantage when it comes to being justified before God because they had the law. Because all the law did for them is what any law does for all humans, proves our sinfulness and guilt. Again, as Paul's saying, you can be justified by works. Sure, if you do them all perfectly. Paul is not arguing the means of justification at this point. He's trying to make the point that no one is going to be justified by the law. Those who had it, broke it. Those who didn't, broke the knowledge of law and right and wrong that they did have. We are guilty. We are guilty. And every Christian in this room is still sinning. And rebelling against God in one or many more areas. We pick it up in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children... Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? That's very, that's a very interesting thing to say. You who would preach against having idols, do you steal money that comes into the temple showing that you love money? That you have an idol while you preach about abhorring idols? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So clearly, Paul is speaking primarily to those Jewish Christians in Rome that still were clinging to the fact that they were Jewish as some kind of advantage, looking down on the Gentiles, causing disunity, threatening the spread of the gospel, all these things. The law the Jews were given is a law that accuses. And the fact that Israel has been entrusted with the written word of God places them under a greater responsibility to keep it. And that way it doesn't give them an advantage. There's no guesswork for the Israelites as to right and wrong, is there? They don't have to be guided by their conscience. They know precisely what God requires. Just like you and I do today, beloved. Having the law as Israel did gave them a very high calling in the world. You can see that. They were supposed to be guides to the blind and light to those in darkness. But since they took the law as a means of their own justification, we can do this, we can obey this, especially if we add guardrails upon guardrails upon guardrails to keep us from breaking it, which Paul will go on to say, all that does is increase your sin. We, we cannot possibly live up to the standard God has. Since they look at the law as sufficient to bring about their justification, the book of the law has become darkness to them. In other words, their self-justification efforts, their belief in themselves, 
These things are killing them, blinding them. And as a result, their behavior and false trust and false worship don't result in the praise of God. Instead, in verse 24, others actually mock God because they can see that those who claim special status and had the law can't keep it. They can't follow what they've been given. So who are you to tell me to follow something I haven't even been given, right? And it only increases the sin of the world because instead of being light, it is darkness. Having the book of God's revelation in the Old Testament does not exempt the Jews in any way, shape, or form from judgment and wrath for their wrongful worship and wicked behavior. In fact, it increases it. Because to whom much has been given, much is required. Jesus, in his parables, speaks to this very thing so often. When he talks about the necessity of being faithful in little, in multiplying what you have been given, and not hiding the light you've been given, etc., etc. All that is pointing to their failure under the law. What all this reveals is that the distinction of being Jewish... Now that Jesus Christ has come and fulfilled all righteousness is the priority they have as to being under judgment and wrath because of the light that they had. That is the position Israel below on the earth is in today. Beloved, she is enslaved as Paul talks about in Galatians. So Paul's purpose here, what he's trying to do to the church in Rome is bring the Gentiles up in the eyes of Jewish Christians from dogs as they called them, and non-persons basically, to creatures of God just like they are in the same relationship of accountability to their Creator. Jews and Gentiles are on a completely level playing field of law. That is, we both stand together under God's wrath. If the Gentiles are elevated in this way, that is, if they're brought up to the level of responsibility before God, in the eyes of the Jewish people, the Jewish Christians, namely here in Rome, and they, the Jewish ones, are brought down from what they believe is an elevated status that keeps them or exempts them from judgment, then everyone in the church, everyone in the world is right where Paul wants them. Equally disadvantaged and shut up underneath Madam Sin, capital S, accused by the law, liable to judgment, facing God's coming day of wrath. Because it's there, and only there, that the only means of justification is shown to be the gospel. They're all in need of a Savior to absorb that wrath for them and bring them through it. We're all in that place if we accept Paul here. And that's what Paul's after in this section, trying primarily to convince, first of all, These apparently aloof Jewish Christians in Rome. All will be judged in verse 16 according to the gospel Paul preaches. We're all under that one thing. The gospel of God. It is only by way of the gospel that the promise of forgiveness of sins can be given. It's only by way of the gospel that the righteousness God requires can be received. And that's only by faith. Only through the gospel can one pass through the wrath of this day and the last day. And beloved, in this is our comfort. Everything will be judged in light of the gospel. Praise God that this is the case. All our sins, all our guilt will be judged based on whether or not those things have been covered by Jesus. That's the standard 
of judgment. If we have not received his forgiveness, we stand condemned under God's wrath for all eternity. It doesn't matter what we've done. We've broken something. And if we have received his forgiveness, regardless of what we've done, we will be justified and alive in Christ for all eternity. This is the demand the law makes of everyone. We must all possess a justifying righteousness, a righteousness that's good enough to approve us to God. And only in Christ, who is proclaimed to us in the gospel, can we have or hope to possess such a lofty thing. Verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. These last few verses here are earth-shattering revelation to the world at that time and continue to be. Because Paul is redefining the word Jew. That's what he's doing. We still don't accept that, but that's what he's doing. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? He's talking about identity in the people of God. Verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. What? He's going he's to repeat this in Romans 9. Paul, what are you saying? No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. It's, it's not? I can show you right now, Paul, like it's, it's totally outward and physical. No, no, it's not. Because circumcision actually means identity in the people of God. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter or the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is an amazing thing to be saying. God's final day of wrath is at work even now. Talked about this from Romans 1, as all are enslaved to their idolatry and the sin that results from it, God's judgment will be impartial and based on deeds, what's been done. So merely having or hearing the Torah, the Old Testament instruction, brings no advantage whatsoever, we find out in Romans. The name and calling of Jew gives no exemption from God's judgment, gives no special favors, this means that circumcision, the physical identification on the body of one as a Jew, a descendant of Abraham physically, has no benefit actually if it hasn't been joined with the perfect keeping and doing of the law. What has been said about the law previously in the text, he's now saying about circumcision because he wants to make his point crystal clear circumcision on the body was the physical sign of the covenant for Jews. It was the proof that a man belonged to God's chosen people, Israel. And Paul says, yes, that's absolutely correct. But the covenant to which circumcision is attached, to stay in it demands perfect obedience 
if it's going to provide you with justification. So if it doesn't do that, what good is circumcision outwardly on the body? If one doesn't keep the law perfectly and completely, one cannot invoke the covenant on his or her behalf. You might as well not have it. It doesn't mean anything. So by breaking the law, the Israelites have become, in essence, uncircumcised spiritually, like Gentiles are. They don't belong to God because of their ethnicity. It never was about this. The real circumcision that God is talking about, that marks you as his child, is in the heart. Which means this circumcision, the one God accepts and recognizes, can only be accomplished by the work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. That's the only way, Jew or Gentile. Keeping the law is so holy that if a Gentile were to do it, he would become an uncircumcised or an uncircumcised Gentile would become a bona fide child of God as though he is circumcised because he's kept the law. So even though he's a Gentile, he's one of God's very own people because he kept the law. The issue, of course, is that no one like that exists, but that's Paul's point. If, if they did, that would work like circumcision does to put you in the covenant in this way. With the coming of Christ and his gospel's leveling of the spiritual playing field, the circumcision of Jewish men only served now in light of him as the sign of how sinful they were. Since none of them accompanied that circumcision with perfect obedience to the law. Right? Uh, if a married man is about to commit an affair, he could take his wedding ring off. The sign of his covenant and his promise and pledge of faithfulness to his wife. You could do that. You could take it off and set it on the dresser or whatever. But if he keeps it on while he's sinning, it's not a sign of his faithfulness as a husband, is it? It's proof of his infidelity and his unfaithfulness. A wedding ring is, doesn't make one loyal. It doesn't change the heart and make a person who they weren't before. It simply shows that they should be this was circumcision to Israel now that Christ has come. All their circumcision and receiving of the law was doing for Israel is proving how sinful they are. Right? Paul wants to make the point that no one can be justified by the law. It's impossible because even if we have all of it, we break it. Whether we have it and know it or not, we break it. And if we did know it like Israel did, all it's going to do is increase our guilt and culpability. So the righteousness of God, the righteousness God requires, will have to come from somewhere other than the law. That's the point Paul is trying to make so passionately here. If we are going to become righteous before God, that righteousness is not going to come from the law. We break the law. So Paul says something, again, absolutely earth-shattering here in, in the progressive testimony of Scripture. Let's look at 28 and 29 again. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. I mean, you're, he's, in a spiritual sense, he's doing what like the liberal world does today. You know, two plus two is four. No, no, it's not. Right? 
uh, do you do you know what a woman is? No, I don't. I'm not, I'm not a biologist. So we're just redefining terms spiritually from the truth. Paul is saying something that would sound just as insane. You know that that you're not a Jew just because you're a Jew, right? Like what? So so understand just how just again shocking this revelation would have been. This is what Jesus told Paul when he taught him to be his apostle in the wilderness. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. You can just identify as a Jew now? In Christ? Absolutely. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise, his recognition is not from man, but from God. This is what Jesus has revealed. Paul reveals for the first time in Scripture. See, this is why you have to read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. The New Testament is the revelation the prophets didn't have and needed. This is where it makes sense. Paul reveals for the very first time that Jew is not a word, actually, that describes an ethnic group of people from the Middle East. Jew is God's word for those who are inwardly righteous, who are actually justified before him, which can only be accomplished by God's grace through faith in his son in the receiving of the gospel, Jew or Gentile. Whether or not one is in fact a Jew in the eyes of God is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the Spirit's work, not the law's. It's a matter of recognition from God. Circumcision of the law, they won't do that. The recognition is not from men. That's not what makes a person Jewish. It's from God. In fact, given the righteousness God requires and the fallenness of men to be Jewish is even worse than being Gentile in a spiritual sense. We're not talking about racism and ugly things like that here and looking down on people. We're talking purely in a spiritual sense. We're not above Jewish people. But that, that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul was a Jew. He's making the point that we're all the same. Those who did have the law broke it. They're really in trouble. So let's increase evangelism to the Jewish people and to Israel rather than just kind of assuming they, they kind of have a shoe in. Beloved, no, they don't. Right? We need to evangelize Israel. They're, they're not in by default. Read the Bible. Those who did have the law broke it. This is what we do. We sin no matter what we know to the contrary. Jesus Christ inaugurated the new eon of righteousness and peace where sins are forgiven, where sinners are made sons. Now the new world that he brought and the old world from creation, they still that they exist now side by side in tension. You and I live in the tension of two ages until the day of Jesus Christ when he returns in power and glory to judge the old world and set up the new on top of it. The impact of the gospel on this world is the creation of a new world. The world of the Holy Spirit, where those who receive the gospel by faith live eternally. In us, to us, the words in verses 25 to 29 are extremely special. 
right? This, this is not, here's how people straw man this. This isn't replacement. This is fulfillment. This is the revelation of something that has always been the case. With this gospel and the new age it's created, there comes a fulfilled definition of the word Jew and a fulfilled description of what circumcision on the body was only pointing to for the heart. These new meanings fulfill what those types pointed to and then they surpass them and all that they accomplished in the old world of the law when they did have an advantage. The true Jew, the one on whom God's sign of approval now rests, is the one who has been made alive by the Spirit of God to have faith in Jesus Christ for his or her salvation. Made a part of this new creation in Christ. The Second Corinthians 5.17 clearly teaches us and brought into all that the Old Testament pointed to. This is what it means to be brought into Christ. The true circumcision is faith. It's faith brought about in the heart by the hands, not of people, but of the Holy Spirit through the word of the gospel. Paul will go on to say in 2 Corinthians 3 that a veil lies over the face of the Israelites when they read the Old Testament without seeing the glory of God that's now been revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. That's precisely what he says. If Jesus, if the new isn't shining into the old, you're reading it with a veil on it and you won't understand it. The Bible is so clear to us. We make it so muddy. And as a result of that veil, they still rely on their ethnicity, the following of the letter of the law, to be made righteous and considered God's own. And before, again, we would look down on them for this. We all do this in one way or another. We find something in ourselves, in our heritage, in our behavior, in our effort, in our works, that we think gives us a slight edge over other people, other Christians. So we look down on them. We judge them silently or very loudly. We brag about the righteousness we perform. We find our identity in it. That's human to do. That, that's, that's what a fallen human being does. Because we're all trying to justify ourselves. And so we determine whatever it is we decide is valuable enough to do that and honestly believe that God will accept it. By contrasting the old way of the letter, the law, with the new way of the Spirit, the gospel in verse 29, Paul lets us know this is, that's precisely the point he's trying to make here, what I've just been talking about. Paul's train of thought here prepares us for the affirmative side of his preaching of the gospel that's coming in the rest of the letter. That is the life of faith in Christ in the new age, the new eon, the realm of the Holy Spirit. That's where he's going. In this day and age, beloved, what is hidden is seen by faith and is very real. The last day will reveal it to everyone when God judges the hidden things of all men by the gospel. Jesus Christ will out everyone as righteous or unrighteous based purely on how we responded to Him. In Him is the only possibility, the only purchase of the forgiveness of sins and the only righteousness God will accept. 
What we need to say is put me in Christ and leave me there. Nothing else. Rely on nothing else. That's what Paul is doing later in Philippians 3. I know I've done right. I know I've obeyed the law. I was a Hebrew of Hebrew, a Pharisee of Pharisees. You couldn't touch my obedience. I count it all as rubbish. I don't want it. Get it away from me. Find me in Christ. Only Him. I claim only Him. So we must no longer be deceived by appearances, beloved. To the degree that we would trust in what we see, the membership in the family of God isn't readily visible to the eye. There are people in the church that have other people completely snowed as to what they're really like. Doctors have insight into certain things about people. Lawyers do. Judges do. Preachers do. Sorry. We see the good. We see the ugly. We see people that claim the name of Christ, treat their brothers and sisters like absolute garbage, are bitter, angry, stubborn, nasty, no fruit, no happiness, no joy. But boy, when they walk into a room, you know. I've told you that story about the guy at the old country buffet, didn't I? My first church and heard this guy just reaming the hostess because there wasn't a table big enough for his group. And when he turned around, he's all mad. He's got this big deacon badge on him right here. How about that? Right? I'm a deacon. You don't have my table? Like, and with, out of the same mouth, he blesses God. So do I. Same way. Right? Just like James says. So, look, nobody is better than anybody here, but we all need to understand that none of us are good and only Christ is good. Right? That, that's what scripture is after. We, we don't have anything to brag about, to hold over or in front of the world. Nothing, beloved. And listen, that's hope. I'm so glad it's not based on my appearance. It doesn't matter how outwardly moral or clean or good a person is. The outward person does nothing to achieve one's justification or identity, one with the people of God. There's a work, this is a work only the Holy Spirit can do in the heart of a person. Only the Spirit, right? Just, just live on your knees, right? Pray without ceasing. God, keep me in Christ. And, and He will. He is going to do that. Salvation, one's participation in the new age, their identity as a child of God is a matter now not of physical circumcision, not of obedience to the law, but of faith in Christ. It is a matter of the heart. And, and, and we don't decide what that looks like. That's not what I mean. God knows my heart. That's right. And he's going to kill you for it. So be redeemed and saved. Only God can judge me. Right. That's horrible news because we're all guilty. Paul does not deny there were privileges granted to the physical children of Abraham in history. Clearly there were, and he will go on to talk about that. In that sense, yes, of course they were advantaged and uniquely loved by God and his covenant people. But now that Christ has come, these things no longer have value. They're, what they pointed to has come. Therefore, as Hebrews teaches, they've passed away. They're, they've become obsolete, in fact. 
none of those advantages that they did have and privileges that they did have, none of them gave the Jewish people an advantage in escaping God's wrath and the judgment of our deeds. Beloved, if we are all going to be judged by our deeds, according to the gospel, then we not only need forgiven of all our sins, we better have someone else's deeds counted to us as our own. Because we cannot produce the righteousness of God. The coming of Jesus Christ, the life of perfect obedience that he lived in, Jesus only did the will of the Father, never sinned. That life is the life that was offered up as a sacrifice to God for the sins of the world. The righteousness of Jesus is the only thing holy enough to cover our idolatry. That's how great idolatry is, that that's the only thing that could forgive it, but that's also how great His perfection is and His righteousness is. The righteous obedience and sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus justify the billions that exist today and that have ever existed for all who receive Christ. It's that good, that worthwhile. Since He was indeed righteous, He was vindicated by God who raised Him from the dead. We need the resurrection. As Paul will say, if he doesn't resurrect, if his life wasn't good enough to be resurrected, our faith is in vain. Even our faith is in vain at that point. Isn't that amazing? The works of the law can't save. They don't justify. Circumcision, identity as a Jewish person doesn't save. It can't justify. And it all centers on Christ because if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, faith won't even justify Having completed his work, he ascended back to the Father's right hand, took his rightful place as the King and Lord of heaven and earth. Believer, he is praying for you and interceding for you as we speak. At the right hand of God, you will obtain your redemption. Under his reign, all the guilty may now be saved and justified fully by receiving for the payment of their debt. And the lack of their perfection, Jesus Christ, the righteous. To be righteous before God is what Paul is driving after here. That's another way of saying what it means to be justified before God. Those who receive Jesus are not considered righteous by God because they are righteous. But because God considers us, counts us as righteous in Christ. In other words... Do you know why Christians are righteous? Because God says we're righteous. Period. God, I know different. But he knows his son. No one is looked on as righteous by God except the one who fulfills the whole law in word and in deed. And only one human being has ever done this. The only one who fulfills the law, all of it, in word and deed, is Jesus Christ. Paul's point here is, listen, no one is righteous outside of him, and it doesn't matter who you are. No one fulfills the law, as he's going to make it clear in the next chapter. He's going to go on proving it. 
the reality of our sinfulness exposed in all its depths and in all its darkness also exposes what it actually is that marks a person as a child of God in this world. It can never be ethnicity or nationality or knowledge of the law or possession of it. It can only be the work of the Holy Spirit, period. There's not another way to be justified, whether you're Jew or Gentile. The undeniable depth of human guilt before God means that any advantage one may claim before him is absolutely worthless, since God saves only by the inward work of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is setting the stage for the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The whole Bible centers on that fact. By first proving the universal indiscriminate guilt and desperation and sinfulness of every human being. Sin killed us all. There's only one way to be saved, to belong to God as his own dear child. Identity in the family of God is purely a matter of the heart. Again, that doesn't mean that salvation is a matter of what you decide it is in your own heart. It means that what we need for salvation has to be done in us and to us by the Holy Spirit. We must hear the gospel. We must receive the forgiveness and righteousness of Jesus. Beloved, every sin we commit and are committing, every shortcoming, the sins of commission that we do and omission, the good that we know we should do and we don't, Scripture imprisons all of it under the sin of idolatry. See, that, that's the question this morning. Do, do we take God's word seriously enough? Do we find the idea that our sin could be called idolatry offensive? Because idolaters only look like, you know, crazy people that cut their own skin and worship statues and things. No, beloved, they're a picture physically of what we all are spiritually. Right? We're idolaters. Our sin is serious enough. That's how serious sin is to God. He calls it idolatry when we lie, when we disobey our parents, when we lust sexually and all these things and love money. God says, no, that's all idolatry before me. When you gossip, that's idolatry. You're serving something other than me. We won't wash away our guilt with a desire to do better or with good works or with good intentions. Only the blood of Jesus can give life. Only the blood of Jesus can forgive sins. Only the righteousness of Jesus can justify. And this he will do right now and keep on doing for all who have or will receive him. Full and final justification Salvation, redemption, sanctification, life everlasting. Receive Jesus Christ and live. Live. Look to Christ. 